we're in Genesis chapter 15. And if you wouldn't mind, open your Bibles, having them, your, your, your uh, device, whatever it might be. And would you stand? I'm just going to read the first six verses. I'm going to pray. And we'd like to just stand in honoring God's word as a church. So Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This, is, this one shall not be your heir. But one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And here's the key verse. In fact, it's a key verse in all the Bible. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We do honor it. Lord, we, we honor it by hearing it, but not only hearing it, surrendering and submitting our wills to it. I pray, Lord, you bless it, the things I prepared. Break them fresh. Feed us, Lord. We're hungry. We long for you. We long to grow. And, Lord, if there's anyone here that's longing to know you, may today, this morning, be their time when they give their life to you. So, Lord, we're praying for these things, asking your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So, again, this is a super significant chapter in verse in the Bible, it establishes really the whole basis of God's relationship with men, with people. He's doing that through Abraham and through Abraham and all of his descendants, be they spiritually or physically, these things apply. I was listening to a testimony this week from a, 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 a professor in a university, and he had been a staunch, arrogant, as he said, atheist. And he had a stroke or something. He wasn't quite sure what happened. When he had a stroke, he wound up being unconscious in the hospital. And when he was in the hospital, in this unconscious state, he met Jesus. And when he came back from that, he was describing what Jesus was doing, what happened. He said, I just felt loved. And as I'm listening to that, I'm saying, now that is so simple, isn't it? And yet it is so God. God is love. So when we think of these scriptures and we think of these main key verses and stuff, it's all foundation in the fact that God is love. Everything he does is out of his love for you and for me. So Hebrews says, when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, blessing, surely I will bless you, that by two immutable things, now, this verse doesn't have any love in it at all, but it says, by two immutable things, an oath and a promise, God wanted us to know what I would say, he loves us. He not only promised it, he swore to it. And we looked at that in our last study. Spurgeon said this, consider what you owe to his immutability, God's unchangeableness. Though you have changed a thousand times, <laughs> God has not changed once. He is love. Everything flows from his love. He is love. He will never change. Augustine said, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. So I hope that as we look at this whole thing, it's not complicated, 
believe God, we begin by knowing that God is love. It's not complicated. But how rich and how deep is the love of God toward us. So in, in verse 1, he says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. He said, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So Abram is coming off this victorious uh, battle against these kings. He comes home, and as he gets home, he meets the king of Sodom. He meets the, uh, Melchizedek, king of Most High God. We looked at that last week. And he has this vision. Not a dream, it's a vision. It's a personal revelation of God to Abram. Now, up to this point, interesting, up to this point, when you see these interactions between God and Abram, Abram doesn't say a word. He still hasn't said a word, but God knows what's he th- what he's thinking. Can you hear an amen? We don't have to say a word. God knows what's going on. Exactly. And he says to him, do not be afraid. So in other words, Abram, you're afraid. You don't have to be. God wouldn't say, do not be afraid, Abram, unless you are afraid. And how often has the Lord come to you through the Scripture and say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, here's what I don't want you to miss. That is very personal. He says, don't be afraid, Abram. Don't be afraid, Steve. Don't be afraid, Kevin. You see, you got to get the name there because that's how personal it is in God with us. It's individual. Don't be afraid, Abram. The same thing happened to Elijah. Remember Elijah? Coming back from a great victory. And all of a sudden, Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you if I find you. And he's running for his life out of fear. And so he finally gets to that cave, and God says to him, Abram, what are you doing here? Or what are you doing here? Or Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? You don't know how he's quite enunciating. But whatever, he met him in the cave. And again, wants to sort of put to rest his fears, as he does with us. He says, I am your shield. My translation, Abram, if anyone's going to try to get to you, they have to go through me. Aren't you thankful for that? I am your shield. In other words, my translation, I have your back. I'm your shield. So he's fearful. Maybe he just stirred up a hornet's nest. He beats these kings, and they're going to come back together, and they're going to get them. Don't worry, Abram. If they're going to get you at all, they've got to come through me. It's nice to have a big brother. How much more? A big God. He says, I'm your shield. You're exceedingly great reward. In other words, Abram, you are discovering in this journey, in this walk, 10 years back, and you're discovering that I am your heart's deepest longing. It's for me. There are no other rewards that can begin to compare. The spoils of victory, the rewards of your labors, the rewards of doing good, the accomplishments and successes in your earthly pursuits can never meet the longing that is deepest in your heart for God, for me. I am your exceedingly great reward. Augustine said this, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. That is so true. Verse 2, Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Since seeing I go childless, and the rest of my house, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram 
said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So basically saying, I really want a child. I want an heir. I want, and they have none. Now, Eliezer was in his house as a servant. And if it wasn't for an, him actually having an heir, Eliezer would be the heir to his house. So he's asking, you know, give me a son. You've promised me these descendants. May it be through my own son. Now, this, this question Abraham's asking continues on. And as he gets older and there is no son, he and Sarah take the control. And so it goes with Hagar. Says, well, probably through Hagar it's going to happen. And God says, no. And he further clarifies. It says, no, it's going to be through you and Sarah. And this continued to be a problem in Abram's mind. How are you going to do this? How is this going to happen? When is it going to happen? So he said, verse 4, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body will be your heir. Verse 5, then he brought him outside. This is so fantastic. He brought him outside. You ever stand outside with a starry sky? You got to remember God's there. It's as though God's taking his friend Abram outside. <laughs> and said, look toward the heaven. He says, look now toward heaven. And count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. In other words, this impossible thing. Now, in the observable universe, there are an estimated 10 billion galaxies, 1 billion trillion stars, which is equal to 1 with 24 zeros, stars, or a, what's, a septillion. Now, here's the, here, I mean, this is, well, it's ridiculous to even try and imagine it, but we'll try, okay? <laughs> a tower of septillion people would be 180 million light years tall, long. So, Abram, look up, start counting. In other words, Abram, you, you can't count the stars, but let me tell you something, you can count on me. I'm going to do this for you. Think of the impossibilities of the things God has promised. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The psalmist said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, Psalm 8.3, the moon and the stars that you overdate, what is man that you're mindful of? It's so absolutely incredible to be so small with God and to think that he has set his heart on us. As Solomon builds that temple for God, David's desire, and he builds it. He gets it all done, and he stands in this glorious building, 2 Chronicles 6, but will God indeed dwell with men on earth? Behold, heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this building that I just built? He realizes the immensity of God who can do all things, nothing impossible. See, it's not complicated. Believe God. Believe God. Verse 6 now. He believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Literally, he kept on believing. This belief had been going on already when he first made that first trek. And he's just continuing to believe. But he's growing in his faith. 
But it's a continuous present tense kind of idea. He's believing onwardly. The Hebrew sense for believed comes from a root when we derive amen. So we might paraphrase saying amen. Abram said amen to the Lord. Would you say amen to the Lord? Amen. He believed in him. He fully rested in God's ability, God's promises, God's covenant. He was not believing a theory of what might happen. He was believing God for what he knew would happen. There's a difference. It's not a might, it's a would. Accounted means to put to the account of, to reckon, to impute, to assign to him righteousness. In other words, he didn't earn it. And this is key. We'll look at this a little more this morning. Here's another quote. Above all, his righteousness is not the result of any accomplishments, whether of sacrifice or acts of obedience. Rather, it is stated that belief alone has brought Abram into a proper relationship with God. A German theologian, von Rad. Not by works of righteousness, he believed God. It's the same believing of the earliest fathers of our faith. Abel, Enoch, Noah. It's the same believing of the one of our patriarchal fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. The same believing of imputed righteousness in God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with David, and the new covenant through Jesus Christ. It's a gift that God gives to us, having been credited to our account because of what Jesus did for us. God's covenant with Abram establishes that same foundation. He believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. If the verse is quoted six times in the New Testament, either fully or partially, we'll look at that in a moment, but it confirms this righteousness being reckoned, being put to your account, my account, being assigned to us, how? By faith. I believe God imputes. I believe God accounts it. Believe what? Believe him. I believe what he said. I believe what he's declared. And I am the recipient of righteousness. So we'll look at what that means and what that looks like at the end in just three short things. But before we do, Let's just continue to go on in these verses. Verse 7, then he said to him, Lord, he said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit. So he's back to the land, the promise. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said, bring me a three-year-old heifer, three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all, them, all these to him, and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. So it's possible the bird was on one, on one side and one on the other. So he's taking this ancient pagan ceremony that Abram probably knew about, and because of his presence, he's making it sanctified and holy. And what the ceremony is, is it's this ceremony of making an agreement the idea of this ceremony is, let this happen to me if I don't. We'll get this in a moment. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, verse 11, Abram drove them away. So he makes the preparation as God instructed him, and now he's waiting and watching for God's next move. 
He drives the vultures away. Now, that may be symbolic of what we're going to be reading in a moment. Often that was seen as some evil omen, the vultures coming down. And so it might be prophetically speaking of what we read now in verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. We're going to come back to verse 12 in a moment. But this is what's going to happen to your descendants. Revelation from God. He's saying they're going to be deep, dark, and scary times coming along to his descendants. Verse 13. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. That's a long time. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge, God said. Afterward they shall come out with Great possessions. So his descendants, here's the future, Abram. Dark, scary. Your descendants are going to go through a seemingly endless time of severe bondage. But then they're going to be delivered by me. And I'm going to bring them back. Next it says, now as for you, notice verse 15, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at your good old age. In other words, Abram, you're not going to see it. Really? You're going to be dead before it happens. 400 years and all these things. So he's talking to Abram. He would die before this covenant is fulfilled. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9. By faith, Abram dwelt in the land of promises in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. God is saying to Abram, you're going to die before this happens. Verse 16. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So his descendants would return to the promised land, Interesting, because this is a foreshadowing of God's promise to Abram over the whole spectrum of fulfilling it. His descendants would come back to the promised land, and in so doing, under Joshua, they would serve as God's instruments of judgment on the nations. That's what's going to happen. Now, he specifically picks out the Amorites. We're going to see, as we continue through the Bible, there are many nations that God judged through his people, Israel. And I believe there's coming a time in his second coming when these same things will be a foreshadowing of that happening as God judge, Jesus judges the nations through the nation Israel on the throne there in the promised land. Now, it's interesting, before judgment, God gives them hundreds of years to turn, and they don't. He is merciful, always in judgment. Now, what's he saying here? All this is to say... God had much more to do before fulfilling completely the promises he was making to Abram, including, listen, including the continued calling and calling back and disciplining of his descendants, of the heirs of promise, of the covenant people, because God has a purpose in God's covenant with Abraham for his people. Isn't that fantastic? 
He's going to bring them back to the promised land. They are going to be his instruments of judgment. But before that happens, God is going to be working them to prepare them for his purpose for them as he is for us. By the way, when we die, we're not going to go play harps in the clouds. God is working with us, his people here, for a future purpose according to his covenant. And we will be, as it were, a part of the rule and reign of Christ in the kingdom. So we are being prepared for a future that God has purposed for us, his church. Now, God was faithful throughout their long and rebellious history. And make no mistake about it, God will be faithful to fulfill his promises to Abraham through Israel, through Christ. Now, this is where this ceremony gets profound. Verse 12 again. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, so here's the deal. God put him to sleep. A deep sleep fell upon Abram. In other words, Abram did not participate in the ceremony. Important to recognize this. He contributed nothing to the ceremony. He was just observing it as a vision. So verse 17. It came to pass when the sun went down, it was dark. So the sun was going down in verse 12. Now it went down, so it's night now. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, notice, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Catamotes, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Pharisees, out of sight. There you go. Ten of them. I'm giving it all to you. Now, if you were to look at a map, and I don't have this, I will have this as we continue in Genesis. If you look at a map and see the boundaries of the promised land, you will see that Israel has only possessed in their history about a tenth of all that God promised. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. I believe in a literal fulfillment that's coming when Jesus comes again. That to me is so exciting. It is impossible, but God is not the impossible. He can do anything. And when Israel became a nation and has remained a nation, it stirred up a lot of things with people who said, no, God's done with Israel. No, he's not. He's not. And he will yet do what he promised Abram thousands of years ago. Because a thousand years is like one day to the Lord. No problem. He doesn't forget. He doesn't say something he's not going to do. He cannot lie. So here we have the picture. Two parties had to walk together through the sacrifice to guarantee the covenant. Guarantee the agreement. The ceremony is sealing the deal. It's, it's a binding agreement between two parties. So may this be done to me if I don't keep my side of the oath. May I be killed. Now, if you look at Jeremiah chapter 34, he hits this. I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and pass between the parts of it. The princes of Judah... Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. 
Can, yeah, there you go. I will give them into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth. In other words, that's what happened. So Jeremiah actually gives a picture of this, this uh, ceremony. So who are the two parties? This is where it gets so profound. Listen, it was not Abram and God. Abram was observing, but he was not part of sealing the deal. So Abram sees, I believe, a twofold visual of God's presence. A smoking oven and a burning torch. A smoking and burning, these two things are indicative of theophanies, both to Moses and, and to Abram. So a smoking oven, I believe, is the picture of God's judgment. His presence in judgment. The terror of the Lord. God's holiness confronting man's sinfulness. His anger terrifying the adversaries. And then you have the burning torch, which speaks of God's presence, his Shekinah glory. But his presence in salvation. His presence in revelation and light. So what you have here is God himself agreeing agreeing in judgment and salvation. Now, how will that be accomplished? I believe what we're seeing here is God walking with God through the sacrifice. It's so profound. It's God the Father and God the Son sealing the deal. Walking through it. The fulfillment, obligating themselves to fulfill this promise. That through Abram's descendant, seed one and descendants plural. Will be a blessing to all nations. That seed being Christ. He would do this. God alone did everything. Abram just observed. He contributed nothing. He believed God was accounted to him for righteousness. God the Father and God the Son walking together, obligating themselves. And when I consider these things, it just is like, What I consider to be one of the most incredible prophecies in all the Bible is in Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham was with his only son Isaac, walking together through the sacrifice, prophetically pointing to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross on that exact spot. We read in Genesis chapter 22, Abram took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went, notice, together. (laughs) But Isaac spoke to Abram, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Next. And Abram said, my son, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Note, God will provide not for himself. God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Now in the mind of of Abraham, his son's dead for three days. In the mind of Abraham, he's obeying God. And we read this in Hebrews, 
when he went to offer up Isaac, by faith he offered up his son Isaac, concluding that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham believed in the resurrection. Jesus went to the cross knowing the resurrection. And Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is for us our resurrection. The impossible has been made possible. The cross is God himself taking our judgment and providing for our salvation through his son. Now, in Isaiah chapter 42, another powerful passage. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness and from the prison house. Now, this was quoted in Matthew chapter 18 when they were plotting on how to kill Jesus. This is quoted. Wow. The covenant sealed between father and son. The, fa- the son in submission to the father in laying his life down just like they covenanted to do. He would give his life a ransom for many, all planned. He would become sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God through him, all planned, all promised for you and for me. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He did what was impossible for us to ever even contribute to, never mind accomplish. In Hebrews chapter 10, therefore when he came into the world, Jesus, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book is written of me to do your will, O God. Father and Son. The Holy Spirit also in it. But the Holy Spirit, he just loves to point everyone to Jesus. He was involved in Jesus' baptism, Jesus' temptation, Jesus' birth. He was involved in Jesus' miracles. He was involved in Jesus' resurrection. He's there, sort of the silent witness, if you will, the silent third person of the Godhead. Pointing it all to Jesus, all to Jesus, all to Jesus. In the New Testament, and as I've been studying this, it just, it's blowing my mind even more now, just in the context of this passage. In the New Testament, this intimate relationship that Jesus had with his Father, he talked about it all the time. He wasn't there alone. They were walking this together. They walk through the sacrifice. Now, here's the interesting thing. Jesus walked through the sacrifice, both man and God. Sealing the deal, the future promise. So the father said to this Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son whom I well pleased. The Mount of Transfiguration, the same voice, this is my beloved son whom I well pleased. And you have this relationship between the Father and the Son, walking to the sacrifice. In John chapter 3, no one has ascended. I don't have any of these up here, so I'm just going to, because there's so many, I put them all down here, but I knew I'd never get to them all, so I figured I'm not going to try and guess. Okay. He said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who came down from him, and that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Figure that one out. (laughs) 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. You know, do you know this verse? That whosoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. The Father and the Son, he gave his Son. This agreement, this covenant, the new covenant, sealed at the cross. Jesus said, the Father loves the Son. And has given all things into his hand. John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of the Father and to finish his work. John 5, 22, The Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. John 13. Jesus knowing. And these last chapters of John are absolutely mind-blowing. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. That he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he began to wash the disciples' feet, wipe them with the towel which he's girded. John chapter 14, verse 10. Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father in me? The works that I do. The words that I speak, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Now, I'm saying in doing God. Believe me that I am the Father who Father me, or believe me for the sake of the works themselves. John 14, 30. I will no longer, this is another mind-blowing passage. I will no longer talk, talk much with you. He's going to the cross. To his disciples, I'll no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming and has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father. Let's go. I'm going to go do what God told me, my Father. I'm going to be obedient before the world in this covenant that he is sealing through, his, through the cross. He said, John 16, 31. He answered, do you now believe? He said, behold, indeed, the hour is coming and has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, talking to his disciples. And yet I'm not alone. The Father is with me. The Father is with me. I have glorified you, he prayed in John 17. I have finished the work you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the same glory with which we were glor- I was glorified. What is that glory? John 17. Father, I desire thee also whom you gave me to be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. Here it is. For you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world is not known you, but I have known you. I have declared to them your name and will declare it. Why? That the love with which you love me, they would know it. They would know it. He's inviting us into this relationship through the covenant, the new covenant, to experience his love. John 18, after this, when he had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there's a garden which he and his disciples entered. Then it says this, and Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So he goes out of this prayer in his garden, knowing that Judas is going to be there, because it's all known to him. He knows who's going to betray him. He already said that. He goes to the place where he's gonna, where Judas is gonna know he's there. And Judas 
came with a detachment of troops and officers of the chief priests and armed with weapons. And it says this, Jesus knowing what would happen to him. He didn't run. He went forward. Who are you seeking? Wow. Who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That's the same I fulfill which he spoke of. Those people, I've lost none. And then you get to, then Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. <laughs> He's swinging. But Jesus is going to go and hang. So he says, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? You see this intimacy in going to the cross together. The plan, the solidifying of our salvation. And Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished said, I thirst. There's this vessel full of sour wine sitting there. They took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it to his mouth. When he received the sour wine, he bowed his head. He said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't something that he wasn't quite sure what was coming next. He knew all things that were coming upon. Why? Because way back, way back, in the eternity of time, there was this agreement. There was this covenant that he promised Abram, followed by a covenant that he promised David, followed by a new covenant through Christ, all based on what God did for us because he loved us. We contributed nothing. He is the initiator, we the responders. And thus the glory of this whole thing, it's not complicated. Believe God. What does that look like? I'm not going to go into all these scriptures, but there are three things I'll just put up for you. In believing, it's in surrendering to the faithful love of Jesus for you. He said many things. I am. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. He is that to us. He loves us. And it's surrendering. You know, when I was listening to that testimony, I actually started to cry, but that's probably not surprising to you. <laughs> I don't know what, I'm a little more emotional or something. But I'm listening to this guy's testimony and just so overcome. Here's an arrogant atheist that Jesus meets in his life. And it radically changes his life. Saul of Tarsus, met by Jesus on the road to Damascus, forever changed. This is what changes us. Surrender, just surrender again to the faithful love of Jesus for you. Secondly, it's resting in the finished work of Jesus for you. We don't contribute anything. We believe that Jesus accomplished all that was necessary for me to be right with God by believing him. And so I read in Romans, what shall we say then? That Abram our father is found according to, the, according to the flesh. For if Abram were justified by works, he has something with which to boast, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and counted him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, God, if I'm working for it, that means God owes me. 
Listen, God doesn't owe me anything. If Abram was justified by works, he could boast about that. Can you imagine if we get to heaven and we're all going to boast about, man, do you see what I did? We're going to get up there and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did. That's it. That's it. And Abram was not justified by works. Jesus finished the work on the cross for us to be accounted righteous, justified, forgiven, reconciled, blessed, accepted, and on goes the, the adverbs. Remember those adverbs? Reverb, whatever they are. <laughs> the third and final one, in living to do the work of loving others for Jesus. James brings this out. You say you have faith, no works? I'm going to show you my faith by my works. It doesn't mean we sort of rest, you know, we, we surrender, we rest, and there's nothing to do. No, no, no. From our faith comes a changed life that's now living to do, what Je- to do the work for Jesus of loving people. So James says, what does it profit, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Interesting. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warned and filled, but you don't give them things that are needed for the body, then what's the point? See, faith works. Faith works. And so we, in living to do the work of loving others for Jesus, that's what it looks like. This whole idea, it's not complicated, believe God, but listen, it's not just some mental assent to some facts that we read in a book. It's the surrendering of my life to the love of Jesus. It's resting in his complete work for me on my behalf. And then it's growing as I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling. Can we bow our hearts and pray? Lord, I want to ask again for your blessing over our desire to incorporate these truths into our lives that they become more and more real to us, your love for us, and just surrendering our lives to you who loves us and died on a cross in order to save us from our sin, to fill us with your Holy Spirit, to change our lives, make us new creations in Christ, and then lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And Lord, we know that our future is a sealed deal through the Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee of our inheritance, the redemption, the purchased possession. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the work that you've accomplished in us and now that you're wanting to do through us. So, Lord, we just humble ourselves before you and we say thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Kevin Day, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel South. I really hope you enjoyed the message and that God spoke to your heart through it. If you'd like to know more about our church and find other messages to watch, head over to ccskent.org. And I would love to meet you at one of our Sunday services. God bless you.